Good evening. Welcome to Central Library. I'm Pat Lasher. I'm chair of the Pratt Library Board. And on behalf of our CEO, Carla Hayden, and our board, and also our terrific staff, thank you for being here tonight. Tonight we welcome a remarkable person. Uh, this, our speaker tonight was named a living legend in 2008 by the Library of Congress, an organization, <laughs> living legend. Um, Library of Congress is something we're all pretty familiar with these days, I know. Um, with a very busy schedule, we're really honored that Cokie Roberts could join us and discuss her newest book, which is Capital Dames. This is the first time that she will have been to Pratt, and I know we're all really eager to hear from her. But first, I'd like to take a minute to thank and acknowledge our supporters and patrons, many of you here uh, with us tonight. Our Writers Live events and other programs like, like this one wouldn't be possible without your help. The Pratt, as you know, is dedicated to bringing a wide range of ideas and information to the public. We believe that the topics and the books and the authors that Pratt helps bring will create a spirited and what's important an informed discussion in our community. And that's just one reason why we bring a variety of speakers on a lot of different topics. Now, for a complete list of some of the authors who are coming, you can, when you leave, take a copy of The Compass. The Compass has uh, the listing of events at the branches and then also has the authors who are coming. You can also look at the website, and that is at prattlibrary.org. Cokie Roberts is a respected, as you know, political commentator for ABC and for NPR. She has won countless awards, and in addition to her radio and television political analysis, she's the author of a number of bestsellers, including We Are Our Mother's Daughters, Founding Mothers, and also Ladies of Liberty. In her newest book, um, Capital Dames, the Civil War, and the Women of Washington, 1848 to 1868. Cokie chronicles the fascinating story of the attitudes and roles of many determined women, some of them surprisingly ambitious, uh, in and around Washington during the Civil War. She presents the growing independence of women, um, the political empowerment, the role that these women played, both fighting to hold the Union together or fighting to dissolve it, but also their efforts, those important efforts at healing the wounds of war when it was over. Now, I've, been, I've started this book, and I, t I told our speaker, I'm probably going to read it several times, because you can read it if you're interested in civil war, the development of feminism, the pace and the procedures for the Emancipation Proclamation, um, but you can also read it for the gossip, what people were wearing and how they fought to get invitations to parties uh, and the competition. So you can read it for a number of things. But um, I know you'd rather hear about the book from her than me. So please welcome to Baltimore and to the Pratt, brilliant journalist and author, Cokie Roberts. Thank you. 
Thank you so much, and what a treat to be here in this beautiful library that's about to get renovated, uh, which is a wonderful thing because it is a treasure uh, to be preserved. And, um, and libraries are still so, not only just still, even more uh, than ever before, such an important part of our, of our, um, of our sort of union, really. The, the whole idea of having an educated, the idea of the founders was a virtuous citizenry. I'm not sure we can fulfill that. But um, the idea that, that people would actually uh, understand uh, the, this experiment in self-government depended on knowledge, and libraries were a huge part of that. And, uh, and what's happened in modern America is that libraries, contrary to what most people believe, have become more and more and more important. Um, they've become community centers. They've become the places that new Americans come to figure out uh, what kinds of jobs are available and, and uh, 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 use the fabulous talents of of the people who work in libraries, it was, I don't know what they're called now, librarians is apparently lo no longer the term, media services or something, but, um, but um, they uh, help not only our children, which is incredibly important to make our children love books and, and enjoy the whole atmosphere of being in the presence of books, but books is just a tiny part of what libraries do. And, uh, and they have become more and more, as I say, essential to our democracy. And speaking of our democracy, we are honored to have here tonight Paul Sarbanes. Um, one of the great public servants ever. And, um, and someone who actually remembers how it was when people spoke to each other in Washington. Um, which was a nice time. Um, it doesn't exist anymore. But, um, and I, you know, I am asked all the time, is this, is this the uh, most partisan time we've ever lived through? And the answer is no. They're not shooting each other. And, you know, that's a good thing. Um, the, the fact is, is that, you know, the duels happened all the time. The, the members of Congress would call each other out on the floor of the House or Senate and go to Bladensburg where there was a dueling ground and shoot each other, I mean, murder each other over political speech. And, you know, the most famous one is Burr Hamilton, but um, they, were, they were constant. And think of Burr Hamilton. Aaron Burr was the sitting vice president of the United States and he murdered his political enemy over political speech. Now, our most recent vice president had a problem with a gun, but I don't think it was, you know, that. So it is, uh, it is not our most partisan time ever, but um, it is true that it's a very partisan time and a very distressing time. Um, one of the things libraries can do is to, to bring us together and make us understand where we came from as a nation and, um, and help new people coming into the nation to figure out uh, what they can do to uh, not only participate in it, but to uh, contribute to it, which they're dying to do, and, um, and be taxpaying citizens, which is exactly the goal 
that most of the people coming into this nation have in mind. So I am very thrilled to be here. I am here to talk about a book, though, that is about the most partisan time in our nation's history, and uh, it's a book that I never, ever, ever wanted to write. I hate the Civil War. Um, I, you know, I hate it for all the obvious reasons. You know, 600,000 dead Americans, that's a good reason to hate it. And what it represents is the failure of politics. It was the failure of politicians to be able to come together to get to emancipation without killing more than half a million of our citizens. And that's an indictment. And I hate that because I'm a believer in the system. And, um, and I don't like the fact that that's what it took. And so I never, ever, ever wanted to write about it. Also, all of my ancestors fought on the losing side. And so <laughs> that was another thing. Um, but my publisher was very clear that I was going to write about the Civil War. And, um, and so I, I sort of sucked it up and said, okay, I'll write about the Civil War. But I had absolutely no idea what I was going to write. I mean, obviously, I knew it was going to be about women. I mean, no, there are plenty of the other kind. But, um, but I, I really didn't know the book. I did know that once I started getting into it, that I would meet women that I had no idea existed and that I would love them. And I knew that I would uh, find letters and diaries uh, that were just so fabulous um, that you, you know, just... It's, it's worth it to do all that work just to read that letter, that diary. And um, it's, it's just a fact that women's letters are so, so, so much better than men's letters. Um, I mean, they just are. Because the men's letters are, uh, are very studied and edited and purposeful and pompous. Um, because they, they consider themselves great men and they expect their letters to be preserved and published. And so they write with that in mind. The women just write letters and they totally expect that the you know, letter will be received by the recipient and destroyed. So they say anything they want to say and they are frank and funny and honest and complete, because they not only talk about politics, which they do endlessly. I mean, these women were very, very interested in politics. This is true, I mean, with my earlier books in the founding period, they were very keen. But they also talk about who's having and all too often losing babies, what the fashions are, what the economic situation is, because, of course, they're dealing with it much more directly in many cases, than the men are. And um, so the letters are always, I knew that. I knew I would find delightful letters. Um, my personal favorite remains one that I found when I was uh, researching the book Ladies of Liberty, which is in the early republic. And uh, these letters, most of them have never been published, so, you know, you're just you're doing this detective work. And this was a letter written by Louisa Catherine Adams, the wife of John Quincy Adams. Uh, there's now, by the way, a fabulous biography of her out, brand new, 
reason. I recommend it. But um, at this point, there was nothing when I was writing. And she, John Quincy Adams, was Secretary of State at this point. It was 1820. And she was so political that she described uh, her own situation as saying, it is my vocation to get him elected president. And she was writing these letters home to old John Adams. Uh, Abigail had died, and he was in Massachusetts, and she was sending him these chatty, gossipy letters from Washington that he loved. So 1820 is the year of the Missouri Compromise. Um, Congress stayed in session much longer than usual because of hammering out the compromise. And uh, finally, they adjourned. The city was a mess. They were running out of ice. People were getting sick. Finally, they adjourned. She then goes to a meeting of the trustees of the orphan asylum, which Dolly Madison had helped establish after the British invasion. And um, she gets there, and one of the other trustees says to her, we're going to need a new building. She says, what are you talking about? She says, well... Congress, having left many females in such difficulties as to make it possible they would beg our assistance. This is what the letter says. The session had been very long. The fathers of the nation had left 40 cases to be provided for by the public, and our institution was the most likely to be called upon to maintain this illicit progeny. Congress had left 40 pregnant women behind. And there were only like 187 members of Congress at the time. Now, some of them might have been recidivists, but still. And um, so she says to John Adams, I recommended a petition to Congress next session for that great and moral body to establish a foundling institution and should certainly move that the two additional dollars a day they have given themselves as an increase in pay may be appropriated as a fund toward the support of that institution. Now, you know, it doesn't get any better than that. I mean, that is fabulous. You do not read that in any men's letters. And um, so I knew I would have treats in store. And in fact, one of the uh, most fun letter writers did turn out to be uh, Louisa Adams' daughter-in-law, Abigail uh, Brooks Adams, who was married to Charles Francis Adams, who was briefly uh, in Congress uh, from Massachusetts and then became the Union's ambassador to the Court of St. James. But uh, while they were in Washington, she wrote these wonderfully snarky letters back to her son, Henry Adams, and uh, she said things like, you know, President Buchanan is a silly old toad, and, um, and the Senate behaves like children and silly ones at that, which I can get behind these days. And, um, but then my personal favorite, I would advise any young woman who wishes to have an easy, quiet life not to marry an Adams. So... Um, so, treats were in store, but I still didn't know what the book was. So, I started thinking about my own childhood growing up in Washington. And I grew up in the immediate post-World War II era. And I, of course, learned about Rosie the Riveter 
and the government girls who came to Washington in large numbers. Um, And I saw the physical manifestation of how Washington and the federal government had grown in the nation uh, because physically there were present, as I was a child, on the National Mall, these ugly buildings called temporary buildings uh, that housed the agencies that had sprung up as a result of the government growing bigger because of the two world wars. And I actually remember as a little girl saying to my mother, what does temporary mean? Because they didn't seem to be going anywhere. But um, they were eventually torn down and replaced by ugly buildings on Independence Avenue. But, um, but it was a, you know, it was something where you could actually physically see these buildings had to spring up to, to house the, the increased uh, presence of our federal government in this country. So I started wondering, well, was that true in the Civil War? Was it true that women's place changed, women's roles changed, and Washington's roles changed? Washington's role changed. And I started noodling around doing the research, and the answer turned out to be absolutely yes. So for Rosie the Riveter, there were these young women, and they were quite young and very poor, who came to work in the arsenals. And in Washington, there was this horrendous arsenal explosion that killed um, a couple of dozen of them. And the day afterwards, when their charred and unrecognizable bodies were uh, uncovered by the tarp that had been covering them, the reporter looks down and says, they were trapped in their hoop skirts. So there they were, these girls. It was July in Washington, D.C., doing this hot, dangerous work. They were, they were stuffing ammunition, but still dressing like proper 19th century, mid-19th century women. And the next day, the, there was a procession of thousands, thousands of people uh, that marched to the Congressional Cemetery, led by the President and the Secretary of War, in honor of their contribution to the war effort. Uh, And there's a beautiful memorial to them there now. So it was a very stated, explicit um, uh, example of this is what the women have been doing to support this war. And for government girls, when the war started, young women again started showing up in Washington hoping to get jobs for the government because they needed jobs. Their men were gone. They needed to eat. And um, and then Congress passed uh, legislation uh, permitting the printing of greenbacks to pay for the war. And then, as now, the currency comes off the printing press in these great huge sheets, right, of many bills, and now, of course, they're all cut up and by machine. It's great fun to watch. But then it required someone sitting with a pair of scissors and cutting them out, bill by bill by bill. And the treasurer of the United States said, women are just better with scissors than men are. Um, 
He also allowed us how he could pay them half as much, so some things don't change. Um, but so there were you know, all of these examples. Um, and then there were women who had come to Washington, women you've heard of, but probably don't know as much about, because I certainly didn't, um, as we all should, uh, women like Dorothea Dix, who had come to Washington to lobby for uh, the mentally ill, and she was already so famous by the time she came to Washington in the 1840s, having worked and established mental health hospitals, not only around the country, but around the world. She'd gone by herself to Japan to do this. So when she got to Washington, the Senate gave her a little office to work from uh, in the Senate library so that she could lobby the uh, Congress. And she had a bill to have the federal government put aside millions of acres for the impoverished and the ill. And it would pass one Congress one year, and one house one year, and another house another year. Finally, it passed both, and President Pierce vetoed it. And uh, she left Washington sad, but she had by that time established St. Elizabeth's Hospital. And then she came back the minute the war started and went to the Surgeon General and said, I am here to be the superintendent of female nurses. Well, there were no female nurses. You know, she just made it up and, um, and then recruited them and created them uh, because women weren't in medicine. Um, the, um, the only, there were just a couple of women doctors. My, my wonderful niece, Jenna Madman, is here tonight, a doctor from Johns Hopkins with my wonderful great niece, Avonette Mammon. Um, but, you know, and it was a woman who made Johns Hopkins possible. But um, but they were not in medicine. There was, you know, a couple of doctors and one surgeon. And she showed up thinking she would immediately get a job with the Union Army, Mary Walker, and um, went to the Surgeon General, and he said, no way. She dressed like a man, so that was the reason to not hire her right there. She would go, sort of go to jail periodically just because she dressed like a man. And she wasn't even in North Carolina. But um, the... <laughs> I shouldn't say that, but I shouldn't say that because it's a really great state. But anyway, um, she um, she finally was hired on contract by the Union Army and had such horrendous experiences during the war that to this day, 2016, Mary Walker is still the only woman to have won the Medal of Honor. So uh, it was a time that changed women's lives tremendously. Clara Barton, you know, you know about Clara Barton, probably what you know about her is she founded the American Red Cross. This is one of my really pet peeves in American history books. She founded the American Red Cross, end of sentence, full stop. Really? Was it hard? Was there any effort involved? Did it require anything? She just woke up one morning and founded the American Red Cross, you know. It's like, and then women got the right to vote, you know. Oh, okay, fine. That was, it's absurd. Um, and her story is also a, an incredibly remarkable story of where she had been in Washington again before the war, trying to uh, make money, trying to make, she worked at the patent office and briefly was paid as much as a man. War started, Massachusetts, which was her home, troops arrived, having been beaten up in Baltimore 
big time um, because Baltimore was very much a Confederate sympathizing city. And uh, they, they, you had to change trains in Baltimore to get to Washington. And in between, they were, they were pummeled. And, um, and so she, uh, they, were, they were bivouacked, Senator, in the Senate chamber. That was their camp. And um, so she went and started nursing them and, and then uh, providing supplies for them. And then they started writing home and saying, this little lady, if you want to send us supplies, she's the person to send them to. And then that started appearing in newspapers. And by the time she had three warehouses full of supplies, the uh, quartermaster general said, okay, you can go to the front. And uh, so she started going actually into the war zones and uh, became this incredibly brave um, nurse at the war zones. And her most famous place was Antietam, where the doctor in charge dubbed her the angel of the battlefield. But um, then when the war ended, one of the last messages that Lincoln ever wrote was directing uh, people looking for missing soldiers to Clara Barton, who set up in Annapolis where there was a parole camp. And, um, and she answered 63,000 letters of families looking for missing soldiers and identified 22,000 and marked the graves at Andersonville of 13,000. It was incredible work, and um, her missing soldier's office was just discovered by accident recently in Washington, and it's now a lovely little museum if you're there on 7th Street. I highly recommend it. But then after the war, she did go to Europe and discover the Red Cross and come home and establish the American Red Cross. But it took a couple of decades of lobbying the Senate uh, for her to get them to ratify the Geneva con Conventions, the same ones we're still talking about, the Geneva Treaty, so she could, the American Red Cross could be part of the International Red Cross, so it could be truly effective. And then she went as the American ambassador to Geneva, the American representative, uh, in 1884, and introduced what's called the American Amendment, still called that in international relief circles. So, saying that the Red Cross could go into natural disasters as well as wars. So today, with the Red Cross in Ecuador after the earthquake, it is a direct result of what Clara Barton did in the middle of the last century. So there were incredible stories. Uh, and there were women journalists. Um, Again, some of whom had come before the war to Washington. One, uh, Jane Swisshelm, um, who was the first to be allowed to report out of the Senate press gallery, uh, was soon kicked out of the Senate press gallery for writing vicious truths, um, which, you know, Daniel Webster was a drunk, you know, um, things like that. But then again, during the war, came in in large numbers and, and covered uh, what was going on in Washington. But my personal favorites, of course, because I'm me, uh, were the political women. And they were so incredibly interesting. And before the war, they were all very politically interested and involved. 
but it was all through their husbands, you know, or their brothers or their, um, or their fathers. And they were doing a lot of influencing and negotiating, but they were very, very openly involved. They were always at the debates in, in the Capitol. They were helping write the speeches. They were doing, um, they were, they were advising. They were not pretending that they were just little ladies behind the scenes, but they had no public role. They did, uh, however, uh, feel that they were in a competition to be the chief bell of Washington. They called themselves bells. Uh, one of them later actually wrote a book about herself called A Bell of the Fifties. Um, and they vied a little bit for chief belldom. Um, although they liked each other. They were all friendly, North and South, Democrat and Whig. Um, but uh, the, the one time that they really just all got furious was when one of their number, um, one of the women vying for Chief Bell, was Adele Cutts. And it was very surprising that she was even in the running because she had no powerful man attached to her. She was Dolly Madison's great-niece, and um, she was just loved by everybody. She was brilliant, she was beautiful, she was kind. And, uh, and then she married Stephen Douglas, the senator who, you know, defeated Lincoln. And her friends were furious. None of the women could stand Stephen Douglas. And uh, Verena Davis, who was the wife of Jefferson Davis, and Verena Davis is one of the great characters. Jefferson Davis is horrible, Verena neat. And um, she wrote a letter to her mother when she discovered that her friend Adele Cutts was about to marry uh, Stephen Douglas. And she says, the dirty speculator and party trickster, broken in health by drink, with his first wife's money, buys an elegant, well-bred woman because she is poor and her father is proud. And she says, Verena says, it's a good thing there's a new water system coming to Washington because so that sparing his wife's olfactories, Douglas may wash a little oftener. If he don't, his acquaintances will build larger rooms with more perfect ventilation. Now, you don't learn from the men's letters that Stephen Douglas stinks. Um, but, Verena Davis was very much one of the leading women of Washington, and one of her best friends for life was Elizabeth Blair Lee. Uh, Elizabeth Blair Lee, a Marylander, uh, whose father, Preston Blair, was of course an advisor to Lincoln, her brother Montgomery Blair in the Lincoln cabinet, her brother Frank Blair in Congress, and her husband, uh, Samuel Phillips Lee was a Union, um, a member of the Union Navy. He was a, a cousin of Robert E., but he was in the Union Navy. And because he was in the Navy, she wrote to him all the time. Wrote to him almost every day for years and years and years. And the, the letters from the Civil War period are in a book. But the, but the rest of them on either side are at Princeton. And, um, and she was a very savvy um, political commentator and very aware uh, and of what was going on and, and giving a great deal of advice. In fact, when she died, her obituary said she had learned to weigh political 
opinions and keep political secrets. But it also said, talked about her own political views. Now, this is a woman of the mid-19th century, um, that she was a moderate between the secessionists and and the uh, radicals, and, and went on to say, very few women have had so broad a political experience, and it is doubtful if any other American woman has been so conversant with political leaders and movements for so long a period of time. So Lizzie Lee and Verena Davis were great friends. But Lizzie Lee also was one of the few women in Washington who really tried hard to befriend Mary Lincoln. Not easy. Um, Mary Lincoln was just an incredibly difficult period person. Today we'd probably call her bipolar. Um, she had huge fits of temper um, and her opinions, which were by and large negative about people, she did not hide. Um, she also was truly a shopaholic and the press followed her everywhere she went and reported on everything she bought. Um, and the women of Washington, by and large, uh, just uh, completely isolated her. So her best friends became the women who worked for her. And um, Rebecca Pomeroy, a nurse who had uh, taken care of Tad after Willie died, was a good friend. But her very best friend was Elizabeth Keckley, a former slave who became a dressmaker. And she's always described as a dressmaker, but that is really uh, not giving her full credit. She was a designer, uh, a couturier. She had a shop. She had people who worked for her. She was described in the press as an artist. Uh, so she was a personage. She had bought her own freedom, come to Baltimore, and tried to establish a school for African-American girls to learn how to sew, and she couldn't make a living doing that, so she moved on to Washington and became the designer for the fancy people. And in fact, when she had worked for uh, Verena Davis, and when the Davises left Washington with secession, they tried to convince Mrs. Keckley to come with them. She had sense enough not to do that. Um, but so she then became uh, very close friends with Mary Lincoln. And after the president was assassinated, um, Mrs. Lincoln was in the White House and just out of her mind. And she was there for weeks out of her mind. And she was taken care of by Lizzie Lee and Lizzie Keckley. Um, then uh, Mrs. Keckley went home with Mrs. Lincoln to Chicago. And then she came back and wrote a tell-all book. I mean, things don't change. And, um, and that ruined her business uh, because people worried she might run, write one about them. Um, and also the African Americans in Washington thought she had been disloyal to Lincoln. But that allowed her to do what she uh, was really interested in doing, which was her social service work. Because she had understood early on, before emancipation, that when uh, enslaved people started showing up in Washington to free themselves, that they were in dire straits. And at that point, they were called contrabands. Um, and she created the Contraband Relief Association. And because of her contacts and her uh, ability to reach famous people, she could raise the money and the awareness 
uh, to support the organization. And then with emancipation, it became the Freedmen's Relief Association. And in fact, the first federal government social service agency was for Freedmen's Relief. But she was just the beginning. Uh, These women started to become deeply involved in social service. Now, that had been somewhat true from the beginning of our history, with women starting orphanages and all of that. But there was a bigger need. And uh, women started coming to Washington, some famous, like Sojourner Truth, who had a fascinating meeting with President Lincoln. But others, nobody you had ever heard of, who came to work to uh, relieve the situation of people who were in new situ- new new freedoms that they uh, had no work and no housing and no clothes and needed um, massive assistance and so social service became a huge part of what women were doing after the war, but it also was just one of the things, because what happened as the result of the war is that women really did um, come out from behind the scenes onto the public stage themselves. And so um, instead of the woman who wrote the book about herself called A Bell of the 50s, had laughed about suffragists in the 50s. But she had had such experiences as a, basically a refugee during the, the war that she um, understood the need for women to have a voice and became one of the huge suffragists uh, at the end of the 19th century um, as an Alabama woman and stood on stages with Horace Greeley and Mrs. William Lloyd Garrison, people you know, she would have never had any contact with and bitterly opposed before the war. And that was the other thing that happened, was that you saw these women bringing about reconciliation. Uh, And and one of the key uh, characters in that drama was Verena Davis. And she had been uh, somewhat uh, ignored by the South in the same way that Mary Lincoln had by the North. In the North, you know, in Washington there were people who thought she was really a secret Confederate because her family fought for the Confederate Army. Uh, Verena Davis was seen in Richmond as a secret Yankee because her grandfather had been governor of New Jersey. Uh, And she was not quite fair-skinned enough for a perfect um, southern flower of womanhood. In fact, one of the Richmond newspapers referred to her as Tawny. And... um, after after the war and after her husband finally died, because um, it was a very troubled marriage, she decided to move to New York, and uh, she mainly moved for a job. She had a job with the New York World newspaper, but uh, it was a huge scandal, right? The first lady of the Confederacy is moving to New York City. And uh, she wrote to her daughter and said... I am free, brown, and 64. I can go wherever I want to go. But she got to New York, and she did work for the New York world. As a journalist, she ran a salon. But she also befriended Julia Grant. And it was page one news in every newspaper in the country when the first lady, the former first lady of the Confederacy, 
met with the wife of the general who defeated the Confederacy. And they knew exactly what they were doing. And, uh, and then Verena Davis went to the dedication of the Grant Memorial, again, covered widely all over the country uh, to bring about reconciliation. And some of the organizations they founded, uh, Lizzie Lee, Elizabeth Blair Lee, working with Sarah Pryor, whose husband had been one of the uh, hotheads from Virginia, um, who then became a New York judge. Um, they, they worked together to create the Daughters of the American Revolution, going back to an earlier time when the country was together. And, um, and then all of them working in social services in all kinds of ways, whether it was Galveston flood relief or yellow fever epidemics in Florida or whatever. They were, they were constantly coming together to try to make the country better and to try to, um, to say with their own voices on public platforms, this is what we need to do as a nation. Uh, so that by 1888, at a Memorial Day address, Clara Barton, Memorial Day also was created by the women as an attempt at reconciliation. And uh, Clara Barton uh, said at a Memorial Day address then, woman was at least 50 years in advance of the normal position which continued peace would have assigned her. So that's what the war did. Uh, that's what the book's about. Washington, of course, also became very important in the nation. It suddenly was the, the very firm capital, not of these United States, but of the United States. And uh, so that's what the book's about. I loved getting to know these women. I know you will, too. And thank you for being here, and I'd be delighted to take your questions. Thank you very much. Thank you. We have time for a few questions, and uh, so if you would, um, I don't know that we have a microphone. Oh, we do. Thanks, Jack. So we have the, uh, this, we have two microphones, so just raise your hand, and one, uh, one a microphone will be brought to you if you have some questions. Questions? About the fifth row back Oh, thank you. What does Koki stand for, was the question. My name is Mary Martha Corrine Morrison Claiborne Boggs Roberts. It's your basic Southern Catholic name. Um, But my brother, Corrine, was my, you know, the name that I was given. And my brother, who was three when I was born, couldn't pronounce it. And he called me Koki, and it's been Koki ever since. <laughs> but Corrine is such a common name in New Orleans that we all have nicknames. You know, my mother's name is Corrine, and she was Lindy, so you go figure. I don't really have a question. I bought this book Good. And uh, some time ago, and I was just so thrilled to see that you were going to be here this evening. Thank you. And to meet you in person. Thank you. That book, so thank you. That book, Ladies of Liberty, 
has a lot about uh, Eliza Hamilton. And tomorrow I have an op-ed in the New York Times really calling out Alexander Hamilton. Um, <laughs> because, because we were promised, do you remember this, ladies, last June, that the Treasury Department said we were going to have a woman on the front of the $10 bill? Yeah, well, guess what? Once again, they're reneging on their promises uh, because Alexander suddenly became hot because he had a fancy play on Broadway. And, and I never liked him to begin with. And, um, and uh, the notion that he's going to push off a woman just because, you know, there's some hip-hop about him, when, in fact, not only was he a philandering liar, but he, um, he left his wife and seven children in dire debt. And, you know, so this is the great money manager. Give me a break. And, um, and he, um, had, they had to then, friends tried to raise money to support her and her children. But even so, she was such an incredible, first of all, she loved him was her problem. And, um, she, and she, um, uh, burnished his reputation for the rest of her very, very long life. But she also, even in her poverty, worked in New York in the early 19th century to establish an orphanage, which was incredibly difficult work for women to do. They couldn't own property. They couldn't vote. They had to get out and influence the legislature, all of that. And that orphanage's descendant, the welfare organization Graham Wyndham is still in existence in New York, still serving the children of New York, and she should be on the bill. <laughs> you mentioned how difficult Mary Todd Lincoln was and that it was probably a mental illness. Um, I've also heard stories about her spending countless hours visiting um, wounded she did soldiers. Do that. Absolutely. And from your research, do you think that that was part of her depressed craziness, or no. was that something healthy and stronger in her than she's usually given credit for? Well, I'm not going to psychoanalyze her. You know, I'm not qualified to do that. I did speak last night to the American Psychiatric Association. They shouldn't either, but um, uh, they. But anyway, but she. Um, I first of all, it was what one did. A a a, a lady in um, prominent position did go and visit with the soldiers, and some of them really worked hard. I mean, were nursing and all of that. Um, but I'm not taking away from her. She she did it, and she didn't get anywhere near enough credit for it because she was Mary Lincoln and nobody liked her. And so, um, and it was totally unfair because she, she did as much as some people who were considered great angels for doing it. Um, but that's, you know, that's the press and, um, and that's politics. But she, um, I don't think it contributed to her depression at all. Her depression I, I assume. I mean, again, I'm not. I'm not going to diagnose her. I assume it was somewhat biological. And then she lost a baby at two. And then she lost Willie, and who was apparently a remarkable kid. I mean, every he was the light of everybody's life. 
Um, and then Tad was terribly sick and all of that. And Tad was a difficult kid. And so, um, I mean, I just think life was hard. The problem for her was life was hard for everybody. The number of people who lost a three-year-old and a 10-year-old in the same week was just legion. It's just, it, it's, it's really something to read these letters. I mean, I didn't emphasize that part, but it's just there. You know, one of the women in my book is Louisa Meggs, whose husband, Montgomery Meggs, who, you know, helped build the Capitol and was the quartermaster of the Union Army. But she, again, she, I have her letters, which, I mean, the, who do you write about? You write about people whose letters you have, because that's what you need. And she, um, she lost a three-year-old and then a 10-year-old a week later. And that's what would happen. A disease would come through. And, uh, and then she lost a son in the war, which devastated her. But the, um, uh, it, the hardship of just surviving in the, in the 18th and 19th century is really, and of course earlier than that, but the time I've written about, is, is, is just mind-boggling. Uh, the sadness and suffering and sickness that people went through. And uh, so she didn't get the kind of sympathy you would expect because everybody was going through it. And then when the war started, everybody was losing sons. And so, you know, the fact that she expected uh, special treatment for it, it just wasn't working for her. Um, But she didn't get the credit for the good things she did do. It sounds as if you had to travel to different locations to use the primary sources that you did. Can you give us some idea of your travels to do the research? Well, this gets to be another moment to talk about how wonderful libraries are. I could do it from my iPad. Uh, that is what's happening now with good libraries. is, And it takes a lot of resources. But uh, they are putting their, their most important collections online. Or if not, uh, there are wonderful people who work in those libraries uh, who you can um, ask to scan their collection. I mean, for a fee, which is only appropriate, um, scan the collection and email it to you. Uh, That is so different from when I started doing research in women's history, which was the first book came out in 2000. Um, So, no, 2004. Um, so that's a, it's a sea change, but so you can really do it in your PJs. Um, but, um, but, uh, it is what, what has also been true though, is that once you start expressing an interest, they start finding things that they didn't even know were in the collection because most women's papers are hidden in the men's papers. And so you have to say, you know, I see, it looks like you might have a box that might have her papers in them. No. And, um, and so it's, it's always a, a detective game, but it's, but it's easier than it used to be. The one person who who's, I never found any papers of uh, was Adele Cutts. She ended up being, and she was so pervasive in everybody else's papers and everybody else's, because um, some of these women wrote books, and so in all of their accounts. And so all, what I found of hers was um, 
a variety of uh, all the sympathy letters after Stephen Douglas died because they were in his papers. Um, and then a lot of people asking her for favors. But um, because these women were considered powerful enough that they could get, that people thought they could get them jobs or endorse their product, that kind of thing. And they were besieged on a regular basis. I think we have time for one more question. Ms. Roberts, um, I was um, wanted to ask you a question about your career as a journalist uh-huh. rather than an author. Um, you were a big part of the This Week show on ABC from when it first started with David Brinkley, which really, I think, revolutionized the Sunday morning talk shows to make them actually watchable. Uh, <laughs> uh, I wasn't there when it first started, but soon but after. But... My question is that uh, uh, David Brinkley has always been a, a favorite journalist of mine. I was wondering what your impressions of Mr. Brinkley were. Oh, well, I mean, David Brinkley was obviously... a not only a very gracious and lovely man, but he was a very important figure in American journalism, Um, not only uh, in doing his anchoring work, which was at the time no one had ever heard of, um, but also in the civil rights era of being a strong voice from the South. That's actually how Jesse Helms got into the the senator from North Carolina, um, got into politics. He He was a first um, um, TV commentator answering David Brinkley and uh, and then got into politics. So you had, would you do one more there? Yeah. The question. Do you know of the, the cabinet uh, of Lincoln as a team of rivals? Right. Uh, did the women help to make that team a better team? Uh, the, the question is, we know the cabinet of, of Lincoln was a team of rivals. Did the women help to make that team a better team? No. Um, Mainly because Sam and Chase's daughter, Kate Chase, was so ambitious for her father and kept trying to run the poor man for president even after he had had a stroke. And she actually, I mean, it's remarkable, she ran his campaign the last time and was, and by then he was gone, but in, and by then he was running as a Democrat. But she, um, she went to New York. She ran it. All the newspapers are full of it. You know, it's just incredible. She ended up, though, in dire poverty. It's interesting. Um, she had so much set her entire world on having a man succeed. That, and she had been considered, you know, the most prominent person in Washington and all of that. But it was never about anything she was doing. It was always about what she was trying to get him to do. And then she married a very rich man, and it was a terrible marriage. And um, she ended up selling, you know, eggs and milk and then and dying in her 50s. And, and her obituaries, one of the things that did interest me was how all of these women had uh, extensive obituaries. And they all talked about how she had been the most prominent person in Washington and, you know, it just sort of disappeared. I mean, when I was growing up, a proper woman was only in the newspaper when she was born, married, and died. And um, these women were in the newspaper all the time. And their, their comings and goings, their parties before the war, all of that, and then their activities after the war were very much covered. They were considered people of, of import. And that was worth learning all by itself. Well, thank you so very, very much for being here. And I'll be signing books and glad to be with you. Thank you.
Um, just so you know, uh, the, Ms. Roberts' books are for sale here, and you can. she's going to stay a little while longer and um, sign them for you. So um, they'll make great gifts for your, or for your own library, and they're also great gifts for others. So enjoy, and thank you so much for being here tonight. Safe driving home.